0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 15 again. Matthew and the 15th chapter just passed the halfway mark in our study series in the Gospel of Matthew after I think more, somewhat more than a year of working at this. And uh, we saw that in the section, uh, the first um, 20 verses, there's really two interwoven themes. Uh, defilement that does not come from the things that are outside, but rather defilement comes from what is already built into mankind. Uh, somebody has often said that this kind of thing you know, people who don't have children think that children are little angels because they haven't had children. <laughs> Uh, you know, we come out pre-manufactured, if you will, with sin, and uh, we're conceived and born in sin, and uh, that's just how people are. That is our nature because we come from the kind of stock that we come from, that is humankind, and so what, what comes out of us is a defiling thing. We can also produce good things, you know, relatively good things, but Certainly not until we're saved do we produce truly pleasing to God kinds of things. But that theme of defilement that comes from inside is interwoven with this idea of text and tradition. I say text and tradition because the difference that the Lord is making here is, do you believe the Bible text or do you really believe your traditions of men? Now, as for us and for our kind, we believe in the text of Scripture. So when the text says, honor your father and mother, then we take that seriously. We have to take that seriously because that's the plain uh, meaning of the command in the text of Scripture. But the people uh, in the day of the Lord and in in, in Jesus' day, uh, the Pharisees, had made up this kind of spun up, if you will, situation or narrative whereby they could not obey that command by doing something else with their financial resources, and what they would do is they would designate that financial resource as a gift to God in the temple and thus make null and void what God had told them to do in the Ten Commandments to honor their parents, or in chapter twenty one of exodus, they would um, the Lord would say, if you don't do that then it's the death penalty for you right so um, in any case, um, we come to uh, well, let me see where are we at we're in verse- really we're in the verse middle of the section of one through twenty and We saw that they were offended, that the Lord was teaching against them, uh, highly offended at at his saying, Um, and uh, the Lord says, look, these guys aren't real godly plants. Uh, They're not uh, what God has planted. They are tares, in other words. They are tares. So look at verse number, uh, let's see. Well, 15, actually actually, three through nine is where we're going to focus. And uh, he calls them hypocrites, verse number seven. Let me just read, uh, actually starting in verse number um, yeah, seven. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, this people, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they have taken the traditions of man and they have elevated them to the role of uh, higher than the commands of God. And that's, I'll be careful to say, that's always what happens. When men come up with commands that they put next to the Bible, invariably those commands eat up the Bible and they take first place. So the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church has come up with a number of thoughts, a number of ideas, a number of dogmas, and you have to believe those things and they they trump scripture you know that the uh the, the the doctrines of Marian devotion if they call it that or the doctrines of the saints and and uh the the, the doctrines that have to do with purgatory the immaculate conception uh the perpetual virginity of mary all these things they just they demand christians to believe these things and they're not only terrible speculations, but antithetical to scripture. And then they have the teaching body of the church, which eventually has just taken over the Bible. The Bible becomes secondary. You can't understand the Bible. Set the Bible aside. Just listen to what we say. It's obviously very convenient for them to maintain their power structure and authority. But That's what's happening here. The pattern for that behavior was set by the Pharisees and was actually set before that with the false prophets in the Old Testament. So let's go in my notes to page 8, which uh, you can find on the website if you want to look at those. The bottom line is they've undermined God's command and made it null and void. It has to them no power which is not why it was given. Do you suppose that they would stop and think that God gave a command, but then he kind of undid it by another command? Uh, If he didn't mean it, or he meant it to be overruled by something else, the fact that they're not thinking about this is of the nature of self-deception. It substitutes what I want for what God wants, and they deceive themselves and really do believe some of them really did believe what they were saying as ridiculous as it was. Now, I've read in the past that the money that they designated could have been laundered through the temple and brought back to their benefit. It's like kind of routing money through a complex financial structure in a company and having it pay for your expenses. (laughs) Like then it doesn't come to you as income, you know, somebody... Probably can figure out some clever way to try to cheat the system and do that. Um, we talked about the importance of designations in nonprofit organizations the last time we spoke on this and said, you know, there are organizations who have violated those designations, which are something sacrosanct, to use the money for something else and said, well, they kind of justified in their mind, We're like, well, we got to use this money now, we'll put it back later. Well, usually when somebody's in the mode of pulling money out of sacrosanct funds to cover something they think is more important, they're never going to have money that they can put back later because it's never going to be that important to them. And because they've made a decision not to be frugal uh, and not to take what God provides them as the measure of his, you know, idea of what their need is, then they think they know better and they're going to undo that and, and, and go around it, work around it somehow, and and uh, bring that money through the system and undesignate it, so to speak. Well, these folks didn't want to undesignate it. They wanted to designate it, and they wanted to say, you know, mom and dad, whatever benefit you are going to get from me is now given to God, so I don't have to help you. And uh, in the my latest research on this, I found the possibility that, and this is not something that I would sit and think up because it doesn't occur to me to do this, but they did. So you have to get into the mind of the unbeliever. How are they trying to cheat the system? And one of the ways that you could imagine that somebody could cheat the system is if they get upset at Ma and Pa and they say, well, you guys are on your own. I'm going to give my money to the temple, and impoverish myself, basically, so I don't have anything left to help you and you're on your own, good luck. So he turns his anger, or she, toward the parents by implementing this concoction to get their money out of their hands and be able to not have to have the resources to, to help their parents. They would consign their parents to poverty if they were unable Otherwise, to earn money and, and maybe they'd live. The parents had lived somewhat hand to mouth over the course of their lifetimes, and and why was some of that financial difficulty on the part of mom and dad? Well, because they were raising ungrateful wretch Jr. who says, "I'm not going to help you now." You know, I mean, I, I it's true. The scripture says that parents are to lay up for the children, but you know how much your parents laid up for you in your first 18 years of life or 16 or 20 or however much free rent, food, clothing, uh health insurance, what else? stuff. Okay? So, what's that? Oh, of course, love. Yeah, there's no financial cost to that, but uh, that's the best thing if they do. But uh, you know, Could you not care for your parents in the last few years of their lives if they did that for you since you were a helpless baby on day one all the way up to 18 years old? Well, that's not how they thought. The Pharisees thought in a sinful, selfish way. They were looking on their own things, not on the things of others. Go back to our Philippians series and and hear that word once again. So in verses 7 and 9, which we read, the Lord summarizes his rebuke by calling them hypocrites. They were hypocrites because they claimed to follow God's law, but they were following actually their own man-made law and not repenting of their sin. That's the nature of hypocrisy, presenting one way and being another way. Now, as far as hypocrisy goes, the world thinks it knows where all the hypocrites are in the church but they're dreadfully wrong about that. Being a sinner and repenting, confessing and making restitution, trying to avoid sin in the future is not hypocrisy. Being a sinner and repenting is not hypocrisy, okay? It might be struggling with sin. A believer might struggle with some sin, but that doesn't make them a hypocrite. Oh, maybe you could say in the moment they do the sin, yes, perhaps. But this is the Christian life. The church is designed for recovering sinners who are getting better, not perfect people. But the church truly is no place for hypocrites those who pretend to be real but are actually really fakes. Okay? Um, How can I say it another way? If there's a hypocrite in the church who is uncovered, who really is not a believer, who is trying to act like one, what do we do with that person? We ask them to leave the fellowship because they're not really a member of our body. They're not really a member of the body of Christ. Now, if if they've sinned and they repent and they show evidence of repentance, then yes, they're showing God's work in their life, and that's good. That's what it's supposed to be. But somebody is not a hypocrite if they do wrong things and admit they've done wrong things. The hypocrite is the person who does wrong things and hides them and tries to make themselves look better. Okay, Christians aren't that way. If you hear the testimony like I have of every one of the believers in our church, you will know that those people aren't hiding the fact that they were wicked sinners. No, they're not telling me all of the gory details Neither am I telling all of my gory details, thank you very much. But we're admitting we're sinners, and vilely so. We, like the Apostle Paul, can say, I am the chief of sinners. <laughs> Listen, last, because last night I listened to this message twice, but part of it was, who's the worst sinner that you personally know? Yeah, you don't know. You don't know anybody else's sin in their heart like you know your own sin in your heart. You know, you look at other people and say, well, they," I mean, not everybody, okay, but I'm saying, man, they seem to have it together. They don't struggle with the things I struggle with. You know, I've got all these things that enter into my mind and I'm fighting against them and, and all of this. And so I know that of myself. That's why I can say I'm, I'm right with Paul. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst person I know the best i mean the best per you know what i'm saying i know myself the best and it's not a good picture when i look inside when i'm in my bad modes if you will okay so yeah very interesting isn't it well isaiah wrote about such people in isaiah 29:13 and the lord quotes it right here in verses 8 and 9 this was at the time a prophecy or a proclamation of the current Generation at the time Isaiah wrote. So I don't want you to think that um, the Apostle, uh, the Apostle <laughs> that the Lord and the Apostle Matthew, yes, as he's recording, is saying that Isaiah was predicting this very generation. No, what he was doing was saying, The generation in which I, Isaiah, live draws near to God with their mouth, but their hearts are far from him. And they they, they they worship in vain and they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Well, guess what? Human nature being what it is, Jansen, this is for you, there, there's not a prophecy there in Isaiah. It's a proclamation to those people, and the Lord is saying, you people in front of me today are just like those people were in front of Isaiah back then because human nature is exactly the same, and you people who are, think you're following the law or present yourself as doing that and adding all this extra cruft to it and commanding people to obey like, you know, you can't do this and that and everything else on the Sabbath day. You know, you can't switch on the lights. You can't go a walk so far or whatever. Where is that in the law? Where is that in the law? You're taking the the commandments of men and turning them into doctrines of God and you're not the authority who's able and permitted to do that. This truth is applicable across all generations because it describes elements of human nature. So it is possible that somebody could make a prophecy, if you will. One of God's prophets could have said, look, this applies forever. Like, this is just generally applicable. Well, we know that's really what Isaiah was doing. So the prophecy you could say would have multiple fulfillments. Every person that ever lived on the face of the earth would be a fulfillment of this at one point or another in their life. But that's really not when we talk about multiple fulfillment of a prophecy. This is a general truism. It's a a proverb. It's it's an axiomatic truth about human nature uh, that people, when they get into a certain kind of mode of sinning, Uh, and, And setting their word above God's word, that they end up doing this kind of behavior. So they proclaimed their loyalty to God. They said they were religious people. They sang to God as if they meant it, but they were not really with God in their hearts. They were like a backstabber who says he is with you to your face, but when you turn around, the knives come out. They hate you in their heart. These ones worshiped with empty hearts and minds toward God. It's a hard thing to charge somebody with, isn't it? Their hearts are far from me. Where were their hearts? Well, it's like when the Lord said about prayer, you know, don't go to the street corners and pray. They've received their reward. They, they love to be seen and heard by men. Or like the, remember the tax collector and the Pharisee went up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee was there, and it's funny how the text tells us he prayed thus with himself. Like, you know, he is God. He's praying to his own God, himself. He's not actually praying to the Lord, the Father in heaven, like the publican is, the tax collector who beats his chest and says, God, I'm not worthy. I am a rotten sinner. I'm paraphrasing, of course. God heard him, and he was justified. But this fellow who prayed with himself, his heart is empty with regard to God. Now, as a result of their status with, of no relationship with God, you know, they, the, the, the no relationship with God status, they find a need to replace that relationship with other things. These things come in the form of human commandments that they make into dogma. It's almost like people need to have some direction, some guidance, some rules, if you will. And if they don't find them from God, they create them themselves. There's this, you know, people talk about this gap in people that has to do with religion, this, you know, God-shaped hole in their heart. It's actually not God-shaped. It's, it's what man makes the shape to be. It's twisted and conformed out of, out of shape. And they want to fill that, element of their lives because we're religious creatures with something. And so they elevate their own ideas above God's and create a kind of new religion. That's where all the world religions come from. Worship then is really toward the man-made system instead of the God who made the men, the people. Now, sometimes people may hold for themselves standards which are beyond the edges of scriptural revelation. So imagine the circle that I'm drawing with my two hands is the Bible and all all that it instructs us to do. Well, somebody may have a standard that they hold for themselves that's slightly outside of that circle. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. That's not really the problem. But when those standards, those kinds of standards are elevated alongside of or often above the commands of God, then the trouble light goes on. you catch my reference to the trouble light? You ever have that go on in your car? When the trouble light is blinking, you know you have a real problem. If it's just on, sometimes it's a minor thing and you can just drive on and it's fine. Our our minivan has the trouble light on pretty much all the time, the, uh, the engine light. And uh, it's got 100 and nearly 83,000 miles on it. So what do we expect? It's got you know it's tired. But the sp- the, the the spiritual trouble light goes on immediately when you take the things that you've put that are outside of the boundaries of God's word and you've elevated them up. Um, what might be an example? Uh, today I'll go back to that that ham sandwich example. I'm not going to eat pork, Pastor Sachs said because I don't want to offend my Jewish family. That is outside of the, you know, the, the, in a sense outside of the realm of Scripture, although it's spoken about in the Scripture, but he's chosen to do that. He chose to do that for himself for a purpose when he didn't have to do that. Somebody might say, um, I don't know, what's another example? I mean, some people talk about alcohol as an example. Some people talk about... Uh, well, dress standards is a good one, you know, dress attire. And it may technically be outside of this, although the person is saying, well, the modesty principle that's taught in here is actually informing my specific choice out here about what I'm to wear or not to wear. But when you elevate that, that attire standard above the scriptures and you say, you know, all the women in our church have to dress this way or all the men have to dress this way, To show that they're really spiritual before God, no, you've gone outside, that's a problem. You know, I believe it's wise to fill in the blank is different than you must fill in the blank in order to please God. Those are two different things. Okay, applications. Um, Do not devise clever ways around God's word. That's what these folks did. It's almost like they sat and thought about it, like, how can we get around this? Oh, yeah, we could do this. Don't do that. It's not faithful to God. Do be watchful for instructions that become replacements for God's word. In so many religions and faith traditions, man's word outstrips God's word and replaces it. That's backward. Um. Uh, we talked about uh, caring for parents. Uh, that is tough, but that does not excuse us from doing it the best that we can and the best we know how. That may be a mother-in-law apartment uh, to honor your parents. It may be going over to help them around the house, help them manage bills, finances, medicines, doctor visits, groceries, um, all of those sorts of things, um, Helping them in their retirement apartment or nursing home is another way. But washing your hands of your parents is not cool with God, not cool with God for financial or other reasons. God does not say to honor your parents only if they are perfect. Um, the Lord does know how imperfect you were from zero to 18 at times. You know, you were a pill to deal with, and uh, so... They're not, you know, your, your parents aren't perfect either. But work at the relationship so that it's not so strained that when it comes time to caring for them, it becomes a seeming impossibility. And then back to the other issue about what we eat. Uh, I told you before probably I've learned in traveling that it does not matter where, so well, let me back up. Traveling used to be kind of a big deal to me. Like, wow, I'm going to a different place and it's going to be so different and nerve wracking and all these different things and everything. And it's still somewhat <laughs> nerve wracking, especially when there's, you know, unrest in Chile and there's COVID and there's this and there's that. You understand. But it doesn't matter as much where you are, but who you are where you are. And of course, you know, there are places where you can go that are reflective of who you are if you choose to go to certain bad places immoral places then of course that's that's who that's a really a who question not a where question but in a similar vein we can say that it matters far more who you are than what you eat Uh, it's not really true that you are what you eat (laughs) you know you are what you eat i know that's a different context you know your health or whatever but uh, you, not, you are not what you eat. Um, last time we talked about uh, this section of my notes, which I did out of order then, which had to do with, is the Lord commanding us to, to break the law of God by, by breaking the dietary laws? And we said, remember what we said, those dietary laws were given uh, for as symbols, if you will, of separation of the Jews from the Gentiles. It wasn't that pork was inherently sinful or that shellfish was inherently sinful. That's why we can eat it today and not be inherently sinning in that. God has set that distinction between Jew and Gentile aside, but we don't have to get into all that again. The title of my message these last three times now we've looked at this passage is Clean Hands and a Clean Heart. I don't intend to convey that the Pharisees were right about their clean hands, their clean hands were simply exterior cleanliness uh, and ceremonial, they thought, cleanliness. There was no law in the Old Testament that required the washing of hands before you eat. So I'm not conveying at all that the Pharisees were right about ritual hand washings, you know, but just kind of fell short a little bit. No, they missed the entire boat. Rather, the idea of clean hands and a clean heart is like what it says in Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And you're going to start to hear these words in your mind, hopefully. Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Or First Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 8. First Timothy 2.8, it says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Ritual washing of hands is not the issue. Hands that do not practice sin is the issue. And a heart that's washed by the blood of Christ to break the power of sin and allow the hands to do righteousness instead of wickedness. In other words, you must have a clean heart to have clean hands. The Pharisees washed their hands, but never their hearts. And as a result, their hands were always dirty. They could not lift up holy hands before God. The cleanliness of the hands, like Paul said in, in 1 Timothy two eight, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Think of it like this. A farmer who's out in his fields with very physically dirty hands, can raise those hands up to God and pray to him if those hands are holy. And he fulfills 1 Timothy chapter 2 in verse number 8. Those soiled hands have been cleansed because he's got a regenerate heart, and so he's in complete fulfillment of Scripture, even though he hasn't put a water or soap to his hands all day, as long as his hands are holy. And I pray that our hands will be clean that way and not in the way that the Pharisees were concerned about before we eat. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would help our clean hearts to, to demonstrate themselves in clean hands, that is, hands that do righteous works and not sinful things. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your kindness. We understand, we believe, you told us. Hear and understand about the defilement. Hold on to those thoughts and to be able to share them well with others who might need them. In Jesus' name, amen. With that, I say thank you for participating tonight. special word of thanks to those that are online watching from our church family. And uh, we've been praying for you all. And for those afar off as well, may God bless you and keep you. Those of you here as well tonight, the Lord bless you. Have a good night. Safe trip home, okay? Amen. Good night.